from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. How do you account for the fact that, just like Darwin showed, organisms are changing? They're kind of rising to this challenge. You don't know if it's working yet, but it seems like it makes it hard for the model to to predict what's going to happen. What our research shows, I think, quite powerfully is that, you know, as we design more of these models that you're talking about, we need to start to think about not just how organisms are going to be able to survive in a place, but whether or not they're going to be able to have the traits necessary to reproduce and continue to perpetuate the populations and species. I'm Sarah Fenske. Count dragonflies among the many forms of life that find a way to adjust to hotter temperatures. Male dragonflies in these climates show a clever adaptation. They lose their dark pigmentation. So what happens to the females? A new study by local researchers suggests they don't change in the same way. And that could make these dragonfly relationships complicated. That study was co-authored by Casey Fowler-Flynn, an associate professor of biology at St. Louis University, and Michael Moore, a biodiversity postdoctoral fellow at Washington University with the Living Earth Collaborative. That's a project involving WashU, the St. Louis Zoo, and the Missouri Botanical Garden. And Michael Moore joins us today to explain more. So, Mike, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So these dragonflies, these male dragonflies, what do we know about how they evolve in hotter climates? So it's really interesting. So the team of researchers I was working with were sort of interested in how animals in general adapt to kind of improve their reproduction in different climates. Because, you know, organisms obviously need to survive in order to persist in a habitat, but they also need to figure out ways to mate and reproduce. And so we started looking at these dragonflies because they have this uh, dark wing coloration that they use to kind of attract mates and intimidate rivals, things like that. But we also know this dark coloration, just like you would with, um, just like you'd see with like a dark shirt or something, absorbs a lot of solar radiation. It makes these dragonflies really hot. Mm. And so this seemed like a really interesting trait to kind of try to understand how these sort of mating-related traits. Uh, evolve as organisms adapt to the different climates. And so what we found over sort of these historical timescales is that, uh, you know, whether you look at the very decent, very far past or more recent past, dragonflies, dragonfly males consistently adapt in the same way and that they lose the this dark black pigmentation on their wings in the warmest parts of North America. And so that seems to be an, an adaptation to kind of reduce how much they, they heat up, um, which can sort of... Um, harm their wing tissue and even potentially cause them to, to die. So and, and does that work? It's like putting on a white t-shirt. It's easier to run out in the blazing sun. Uh, it's a pretty similar mechanism. I mean, so the, the physics of light and how light is absorbed into colors doesn't really change whether we're talking about a t-shirt or whether we're talking about the coloration on dragonfly wings. So it's it's a very similar, uh, very similar phenomenon. Yeah. Okay. So the dragonflies have this down, but you mentioned there's a specific purpose of having these darker wings. This helps them show off for for female dragonflies? That's right. Yeah. So the females uh, have a a preference for the amount of coloration that they like on the male wings. And also the males will sort of uh, look at other males and decide whether or not they're going to try to challenge them based on how much wing coloration their rival has. So the more pigmentation, the more almost testosterone. I hate to humanize this. Um, It's uh, it's a different type of hormone, but it's a very similar kind of idea. That's right. So the kind of the biggest, best, most... um, 
desirable males tend to have uh, the the most wing coloration. The alpha dragonfly. Yeah, yeah for, <laughs> that's right. So the alpha dragonfly, he's got this dark pigmentation, but then we're in hotter climates where this dark pigmentation is no good. Well, it, it's unclear if it's no good whatsoever. So we so even in the hottest parts of some of these um, some parts of North America, they'll still have a little bit of that coloration, but it's it's greatly reduced compared to Alaska, northern Canada, um, you know, uh, up into the Northeast and Pacific Northwest. So, Well, so let's talk about what that could mean for their mating. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Is this a problem? So, um, so we don't know yet. So what we do know is that the in response to sort of the warming climate that we've experienced over the last uh, decade or so, we know that the male dragonflies are also losing uh, some of this wing coloration. So in, in warmer years, we see that the male dragonflies have less wing coloration. What's really interesting, as you mentioned uh, at the top here, was that uh, the female dragonflies aren't shifting their wing coloration at all. So there seems to be these differences in how males and females are responding to climate change. And that's really interesting. Um, so our research and research from uh, some other groups around the world is, um, is sort of documenting that there are these really rapid shifts in these traits that these animals use to coordinate mating. But what we don't know yet is, you know, is this are these changes going to completely disrupt how the animals sort of go about doing these mating interactions or uh, are are the you know are females going to just be able to sort of figure it out? We don't know that yet. Um, it's a big question, and some of our uh, some of our research team here in the city is is starting to try to tease that apart. Is there any precedent where something like this has happened, and and males and females start kind of going on different tracks? Um, that's a good question. Not, uh, I can't give you anything off the top of my head. Um, I'm sure that it has happened in the past. We don't know specifically with the dragonflies or, or how common that kind of thing is going to be in the future. But our research indicates that um, it's going to be a very consistent response in the dragonflies and probably in other animals as well, that uh, any kind of dark coloration that they use to show off to uh, females is going to be greatly reduced as our climate continues to warm over the next 50 to 100 years. Hmm. I want to back up a little bit on this study because I'm curious curious how you were even able to figure this out, that dragonflies were doing this. It's a great question. Um, so we uh, <laughs> so we used what's called um, citizen science observations. So these are pictures that are taken by anyone. Um, you know, you, me, anyone out there can uh, now take pictures on their phone and upload them to this website called iNaturalist. And so what my research team and I did uh, is we went through these observations that are on this website, iNaturalist, of dragonflies that are in North America. And so a really cool study came out a few years ago where the researchers actually showed that you can very reliably measure the amount of coloration on these dragonfly wings just from these pictures that people are taking with their with their cell phones. Crowdsource pictures. That's right, yeah. Just from citizens just getting the dragonfly in their own backyard. That's right. Um, and so we were... And so what's really great about this website is that every single observation that's taken has location data associated with it. So we could match up the measurements that we're taking of how much wing coloration these dragonflies have with sort of the locations that they are. And then we could map sort of the climatic variables onto those things. And so from this really gigantic data set, um, we were essentially able to kind of start to tease apart, you know, the roles of uh, of temperature and other things and and be able to look at differences between males and females and how they've responded to sort of these historical climatic patterns as well as kind of these ongoing changes in, in our climate. Is this one where once you got the data on the map, you were like, whoa, like this, this fits? Yeah, it was definitely. Um, so 
we had done some sort of previous research on just a single species, um, and we had shown that there is, it seemed like there was something going on with temperature. And so when we started here, uh, when I started here in St. Louis a couple of years ago, um, I sort of assembled this team of undergraduate students at, at Washington University who wanted to get involved in research. And we started to use this, this technique that I mentioned to actually sort of try to see how much it replicates, to see how many different species do we see this pattern in. And, and I kind of assumed, you know, you'd see it in some but not others because it's, you know, it's, it's a messy kind of thing. But what was really surprising to us is species after species after species just coming back showing this same pattern. And so it's this really consistent way. Uh, I think we looked at it in 10 different species and we see the pattern uh, in eight of them. So it's, wow. it's this really consistent response. It's Are really these cool. all insects? All insects, just dragonflies, yeah. Okay, there's that many different types of dragonflies. Oh, yeah, there's actually, um, in North America, there's about 320 species of dragonflies. And so you're seeing this across the board. What does that tell you about dragonflies' ability to handle what appears to be a, a rapidly warming planet? Um, so it's a you know it's a big question. It seems like the dragonflies are they're doing something. They're responding, which is which is good. Uh, a big question is whether or not they're going to be able to respond fast enough to keep pace with the rate at which uh, the climate and other other environmental factors are changing. You know, we look now and we see the droughts and the fire the wildfires out west. And a, a big question is you know our research talks a lot about how temperature specifically is going to affect these things. But dragonflies are going to have to shift in response to all kinds of different things in the coming years. And so, you know, our research just kind of uh, answers the question about this one aspect of the things that they need to respond to, but how those things interact with the broader suite of threats that dragonflies and other organisms are responding to. Uh, that's, you know, that's that's what we're all trying to answer at this hmm. point. So your study makes me wonder about some of these models in general. We're always hearing, oh, I've got this model and it shows this is going to be wiped out in X years. How do you account for the fact that just like Darwin showed, organisms are changing. They're kind of rising to this challenge. You don't know if it's working yet, but it seems like it makes it hard for the model to, to predict what's going to happen. Yeah. So uh, the earliest models of how organisms might respond to changes in climate uh, primarily were based on kind of shifts on where organisms organisms currently live and the traits that they currently possess. Uh, more recent models have started to include things like kind of these rapid evolutionary changes in traits as we start to think about you know, sort of predicting uh, where species might live and how species might live so that we can best conserve them and we can kind of design these intervent these policy interventions to, you know, best conserve as many of the species as we can. What our research shows um, specifically is that, you know, a lot of these a lot of these models that we're talking about have previously been based mostly on traits that are that are primarily going to help an organism survive in its habitat. Things like just how tolerant to heat is it? But of course, you know, uh, animals and plants typically need to kind of coordinate mating with other individuals, and they need to reproduce in order to persist. And what our research shows, I think, quite powerfully is that you know, as we design more of these models that you're talking about, we need to start to think about not just how organisms are going to be able to survive in a place, but whether or not they're going to be able to have the traits necessary to reproduce and continue to perpetuate the populations and species. That seems huge. Yeah. And as you said, this research continues. What's the next question here that you guys are, are looking at and how are you going to go about figuring it out? Yeah. So we currently are looking um, at how whether or not the dragonflies are going to be able to respond fast enough and what sorts of threats they're going to be most sensitive to. Um, we have some really interesting we have some really interesting results that are hopefully uh, ho they're they're on their way. And, oh, interesting! <laughs> and, um, you know something you can't yeah, talk about yet. I probably can't. But uh, so we looked at various sort of indices of kind of, kind of extinction risk and 
the threat of these species of, uh, you know, how likely they are to go extinct. And we're sort of looking at how the male coloration is uh, related to those things. So that's, that's the first thing we're looking at. Interesting. Well, we're going to have to stay on top of this research when you're ready to share what you know. We're excited about that. In the meantime, I, I wonder, this iNaturalist, this seems like such a goldmine for you. Do you want to give a plug for this, for, for the person who may be seeing a, a dragonfly in their backyard? Do they have an obligation to upload a photo? I would never say that anyone has an obligation to upload a photo, but uh, I appreciate it. And there's uh, thousands of researchers all around the world now that are using this uh, these data sources. And what's really great about them is you know, as we think about ways that we can kind of reduce the amount that we as researchers are traveling around and, you know, taking flights and driving and stuff, um, using these data sources where people have already collected really usable data and uploaded it to this website is a potentially a really good way to kind of reduce our own individual carbon footprints. Mm -hmm. Another really great thing about this, um, these sort using these kinds of data sources is that Students, uh, you know, other researchers can just sort of work on these things from wherever. They don't have to come into the lab. So this provides, I think, a lot of opportunities for research, for people who might not have been able to do research um, in a traditional lab environment to kind of get involved in like really cool, meaningful research. So those are really two big things. And, you know, I think a lot of us uh, on the research side in the last year have sort of focused in on using things like iNaturalist as a way to kind of keep the research going while we've all been kind of in lockdown. Um, but hope, my hope is that, you know, after hopefully the pandemic subsides, that we're all going to be able to, um, we're going to be able to continue to use these sort of sources like iNaturalist to really uncover important patterns in ecology and evolutionary biology and environmental science research. Hmm, what a great tool. Well, this has been so interesting to learn about. Uh, Michael Moore, uh, biodiversity postdoctoral fellow at Washington University. I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.